Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jin Yi Lee, your host today. Um, I am uh, a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona. Today, we have uh, James Hadley and Nell Regan with us to talk about their new book, A Gap in the Clouds, a new translation of the Ogura Hyakuni Ishu. Uh, it was published this year by Daedalus Press. So uh, in this book, James and Nell provide a new translation and a um, thorough interpretation of the famous Ogula Hyakuni Ishu, the 100 uh, Waka Poems collection that was composed in the Heian period. So welcome, James and Nels, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you very much for inviting us. It's my honor to have you here today. Um, so could you, before we dive into the beautiful poems of the Hyakunishu, could you tell us something about yourselves and how you came to do a translation of such a famous uh, waka collection? Absolutely. Here, I'll, I'll go first, if that's okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I come at it from maybe a slightly different angle in that I'm a poet and a nonfiction writer. And when I started writing poetry, mainly in my, in my 20s, I was really influenced by translations of Japanese poetry. And I really loved the kind of the conciseness and the strength of the image and the way in which it, it actually made you see more deeply. So... That's part of my own background, but I also would have translated extensively from the Irish language. But I do actually speak Irish. So this for me was a really new experience in that I, I don't speak Japanese or read it. Um, but I felt I was coming to it with, uh, you know, it, uh, other experiences. I also would have been very influenced by American poets, actually, who had, in, who had translated Japanese poetry like Kenneth Rexroth and Jane Hirschfield and Robert Haas. That's awesome. What about you, James? Um, well, in my case, I, I studied Japanese at undergraduate level and then um, never really stopped. So uh, I've probably been studying Japanese for, I don't really want to think about how long it's been, but uh, well over 15 years. And uh, this collection was actually one of the first um, that I came across when I first started learning Japanese. I was really taken with uh, classical um, culture. And uh, I'd seen, there are many translations of these poems, but um, I never really felt like any of them really um, spoke to me in the same way as the source uh, texts do. Um, so it was really exciting for me to start working with Nell, who, as, as you've just heard, is a poet, um, so I could bring the understanding of the Japanese and she could bring her own um, magic when it comes to 
the, the use of words. Yes, that's something that I, I found very intriguing, that how, how you have uh, very different backgrounds, but you are working together on this um, poetry collection. I'd like to definitely come back to this point later. But um, so can you tell us something about this Ogura uh, Hyakuni issue? I assume many of our audience are not familiar with Japanese poetry. So let's... Hmm, Maybe we can dissect this in a few ways. So, what is Hyakuni issue for starters? Well, um, it means um, it means one hundred people and one hundred. Well, one hundred people and one poem each is the would be a kind of direct translation, and uh, the ogre refers to a place because this collection was originally um, put together uh, to decorate a residence that was in uh, um, the place called Ogura. So this is the 100 people, one poem each collection from Ogura. Okay, <laughs> so yes, Neil. Oh, sorry, no, I was just gonna say, I think one of the things when we were talking about the collection and I suppose that I learned um, about it, that I was so intrigued by was just how central it is to Japanese culture and how, you know, it's still on the national curriculum. It's still, it's actually played as a card game every new year, which I find extraordinary. I just love that idea. And it's also, it's obviously been illustrated by kind of woodblock artists right through Hokusai and beyond, but that it also now appears in manga and anime films. And I think it was something that we talked about a lot was just that centrality of the poems and how they're part of everyday life in Japan to an extent. Yeah, um, well, 100 poets to gather all together to compose such a thing. Um, was it a very popular form of gathering or was it uh, a rather um, rare occasion reserved for special, I guess, celebrations or gatherings? It was very, I, I suppose what's interesting about the anthology is it gathers poems from the 7th century through to the 12th century. So the poets wouldn't necessarily have been writing at the same time, but they all would have been quite interrelated and they're fascinating a collection in that there's emperors and our poets, there's ladies in waiting, there's courtiers, and there's an awful lot of connections between them. But poetry was very much um, something that only took place in aristocratic kind of elite circles at the time. So yes, um, I see from your translation that many of these poets are. Um, court officials or uh, arrest aristocrats. Um, so, what about this form of the of poem that they uh, wrote in here? Um, how would you explain to our audience what is waka and um, how are they usually composed? Um, well, probably people will know about haiku um, and uh, the waka or tanka, as it's also called, um, is the older form of uh, short poetry from uh, in classical Japanese culture. 
and it's made up of um, small components, which are often translated into English as separate lines. Um, but in Japanese, they're just uh, different lengths of or different amounts of um, of syllables, broadly speaking. Um, which which there are five of those um, small um, sections, subsections. So it's it's five seven five. Uh, seven seven is the is the pattern that they run in, and uh, so every poem runs has this this kind of structure, um, but in Japanese um, they're often not written out as separate lines. That that's something that we tend to impose on them when we translate them into English. And um, we did, you know, it's interesting because sometimes um, some of the translations I was looking at actually poets had used couplets or four lines but we did I suppose we did make a decision that we would keep to five lines throughout because I think it it reflects the kind of open-ended nature of Japanese poetry you know couplets or four lines of poetry can feel very complete in a way that maybe doesn't reflect the um, tensions and the openness of a lot of Japanese poetry. We also discussed this this at quite some length that um um if you if you if you don't split up the poems into something like five lines then you might end up with one long line which um would probably run over on on an actual page it would run over so you wouldn't necessarily have a split where in a place that would actually make much sense so instead of having a kind of random um, line break. We decided to make this a kind of conscious thing, and Nell actually spent hours thinking about exactly where the line should shift from one to the next. Um, that's another part of the magic of poetry. No, yes, I'm... that's another point that I want to come back to later. Um, so. Uh, I've seen uh, many versions of whether uh, professional or not, uh, many people attempted to translate this very famous uh, Hyakunyeshi collection. So what what about this particular uh, collection that attracted you to do a new translation on it? I think, I suppose I was very much led by James that we were... Um... We started our collaboration a couple of years ago and I was actually translating Irish language poetry, as I was saying to you, and we ended up working in the same place, which is the Trinity Centre for Literary Translation. And a lot of that was due to a wonderful mutual friend of ours, Sarah Smith, to whom the book is dedicated. She was actually the founding director of the Trinity Centre for Literary Translation. And because we were working in the same space, we'd be chatting about things. And, you know, I'd always had an interest in Japanese poetry and we did one or two small projects together. And then we started talking about maybe doing a book length project. And I suppose, again, I, you know, I was led by James and that he suggested the Ogre. And yeah, I was delighted, again, given how kind of central it is to Japanese culture. It felt like a very good challenge to take on. And I'm not sure. I mean, I was laughing because I think halfway through we both realized what a challenge we had taken on because we looked at the number of translations and I think we steadied ourselves by just going back to the poems. We would just, you know, whenever you felt like there's too much, 
written about this or there's so much so many versions of it we thought well we'll just go back to the poems and we'll 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 dig into their images dig into their physicality um, but James you might want to chat a bit more about how you because you you had a a good understanding of the book before we we began translating it well as you as you've already said they are very very famous poems and uh, so I had uh, a few that uh, that were personal favorites of mine and I'd kind of encountered them at various points and um, so it was always something that I wanted to try um, maybe I don't know that I'd ever thought about translating the whole lot of them but um, the idea of translating some of them was certainly something that had been with me for a long time but as Nell said um, the the process of translating was quite daunting when we started because it's not just a matter of understanding what's written that that is a substantial thing because obviously we're we're uh, separated by maybe a thousand years from some of the uh, some of the poets but also um there there's not only many translations into english but there are also many translations into contemporary japanese because this is these these uh, poems are written in classical japanese so people now in in Japanese culture, even though the poems are well known, um, uh, people interpret them and then they retranslate them <laughs> into contemporary Japanese so that people can understand them fully. So uh, not only were we um, working out what was being said by looking at other translations and looking at the text themselves and breaking down the incredibly specific and um, technical vocabulary that is in some of them, but we were also looking at existing contemporary Japanese translations to try and work out, um, have we got every nuance that we could possibly um, get from, from these texts? Um, it's hard to express how reading such an old text, um, you, you can look at words which seem uh, familiar to you, but um, in the, because the context is so different, they, they could mean something very, very different. So it's very handy for us to, on one hand, it's very handy for us to have all of these other resources around. But on the other hand, it means that uh, even though each poem is very, very short, the amount of research that went into translating each one was a lot. And I think the other thing as well was we were really determined that no matter how much we knew about the poem, no matter how much kind of um, research we'd done, that it w- it would be able to stand as a poem in English. And I think that's key to, I suppose, to translation projects that I had done before and, and very much to this translation project is, and I suppose you're always weighing up, what do you bring into English? I mean, one of, for me, one of the most fascinating things was discovering that there weren't any pronouns in classical Japanese. So all the time we were having to make decisions about who was addressing who and a lot of the time again to kind of get that immediacy in English we we tended to go for the first person um whereas you know you could easily translate a lot of the poems in the third person and that that was a fascinating um aspect to it was how and always I suppose again to the forefront was how do you make it sing and how do you make it fresh in English again that's a great point now um, and I actually like to go back to what you were saying before. You mentioned the physicality of um, this collection. So in this book, um, 
you the you included all the images of the original poem in their um uh, cursive calligraphy form uh, in, uh, uh above all the english translations may i ask uh what was the process of your decision like to include these images because it's very rare i've never seen another poetry collection that included any of the original images and i find it fascinating not only because of the beautiful calligraphy but also because um i think this would make a great textbook for anyone who studies paleography um so why did you choose to include those images i i mean i'll let james talk about the specific ones that because he very much chose them but i suppose it's i have always felt so strongly that um, Japanese is such a visual language and the beauty of it is so visual. And I think it wouldn't be doing justice to the collection or to the, um, if, if we weren't engaging visually with the original source material, because very, it's very common to have dual language books. You know, you have the original language and the translation, but I think given the kind of age of the poems, and I think given the, the visual representation of them and the sheer artistry of it. I think it was something that we were really excited to to include. And it was, I mean, James, you might want to talk about the calligraphy itself, which was something that you had actually chosen. Yeah, so um, I, I wanted to include something that was as, um, uh, as old as possible, basically. So it was something that was as close as possible to... The, uh, the collection itself and I, I was wondering how how far back I could, could go um, so compared to the the collection itself I didn't manage to go back that far but the the text that we managed to to um, get these um, samples from is from 1680 so not too bad um, and it was um, it, it's a woodblock print uh, book by uh, Hishikawa Moronobu, who lived from 1618 to 1694. And he was actually one of the, the people who um, kind of um, pioneered ukiyo-e woodblock uh, prints, which, would, uh, which are the kind of uh, prints that um, Hokusai and the really famous artists um, kind of uh, excelled in. But uh, he, he was one of the very first people. So... Um, the way that they did it was to get a, a calligrapher to write um, the poems on paper and then the paper was glued to some wood and then the the wood was chiseled away around the poem and then washed. So you can imagine it was rice paper. And so water being applied to the, the top of that uh, would wash away the rest of the paper that was left. And then they could use that um, that piece of wood to print the, the poem as many times as they wanted, or many times anyway, it would run out eventually. Um, so this was one of the very first um, printed editions of of the collection in book form. Um, I, I assume it, it did uh, appear before then, but not in printed form. It would have been handwritten each time. So uh, it was important for us to include this this kind of old visualization, but especially because it is um, even just the mm, the the images themselves they are they are historic. 
I think also one of the things which, again, I would have learned through the process was how, depending on the length of the calligraphy strokes, it was also a kind of an instruction as to how to read the poem, which really intrigued me because I think poetry is very much um, an aural art as well. And the thought that the length of strokes themselves would actually indicate to a reader how the poem should be read was is intriguing. I definitely agree. And uh, I think the fact that the images were taken from the first print ever of this collection just makes this book uh, even more attracting. Thank you. (laughs) And we also just must pay tribute to Pat Boren of Daedalus Press, who designed the book. And when we brought the project to him, he was excited about it. And he very much had a vision of it as a book that people could stick in their pocket or stick in their bag and that it would be something that would people could carry around with them. And I think we, we are both so pleased with how he's realised the final design and the cover. And it's it's genuinely, it, it really does pay tribute to the poems. It's a beautiful production. It does. Um, I, I'm holding this book right now and I would definitely recommend to our audience if you're into um, Japanese art. The cover is very beautifully selected. Um, it's a whole image of the, the uh, Mount Fuji, and uh, it's just so beautiful. It just adds to the poem itself. Um, so I'd like to come back to this uh, this point that I I was very intri- curious about the whole time I was reading the book, which is that, so as you both mentioned, uh, James, you came from a background of Japanese studies, but now you're actually from uh, poetry. So when you were working with this uh, collection of Japanese poetry that was written so many years ago, um, what were some of the challenges you met? Um, you mentioned uh, earlier that you that there was the trouble with pronouns because Japanese uh, classical Japanese usually don't um, indicate the pronouns. And other than that, were there any other difficulties that um, you met during the process? What I think what was interesting about it was we started working and James would almost do a kind of prose um, version of the poem. But the more time went on, the more questions I was asking him. And I was going, yeah, but which word says that? And so I, I think all the time I was trying to get access, get as close as possible to the original. And I'd been reading Jane Hirschfield. She'd actually translated a lot of the Ono and the Komachi poems and she described a template that herself and her Japanese colleague used and underneath each character was the exact word in as far as possible in English so it what it allowed me to do was kind of switch between a transliteration but also the kind of structure of the poem and the sounds of the poem that was another thing we did was um, I got James to um, transcribe the vowel sounds of the poem because that was something I wanted to um, not mimic because I you can't transpose the sound of one language to another. But what you can do is maybe echo it. And in some of the versions, I hope I've managed to do that. But I think the other big thing that we came across is the pivot words, which I'll let James pronounce. The kakekotoba. <laughs> Those ones. And I think that notion that poetry is uniquely kind of 
designed to carry all these different meanings, but particularly so in Japanese, where you have words that actually mean completely different things, but sound the same. And these pivot words meant that you could have two or maybe three readings of the poem that were completely different. And so the challenge was, how do you embed those dual meanings into a new version in English? Now, sometimes you you can only approximate it and you can't get the full artistry of what they were doing. I mean, what they did was absolutely extraordinary. But I suppose you're always trying to kind of, through use of verbs or through use of words with different shades of meaning, you're trying to kind of evoke some of that double or triple meaning. Um, but James, maybe you'd want to talk about those as well, the pivot words. The... Well, they're everywhere. Um, Japanese has so many homophones, uh, so so many words which are um, different words, but they sound the same. Uh, so that, that's the case today, even in contemporary Japanese. But these poems took so... I mean, they're, they're so masterful that they, they really... Um, some of them really play with this... Um, feature extremely heavily so um, you could potentially read one poem in in mul- multiple ways and um, either way would be would be correct just because um, of all these homophones and those do tend to get a little bit narrowed down when they're written when the poems are written because one of the decisions that the calligrapher will make is uh, which kanji will I use or, or will I use a kanji at all? Uh, and if they use a kanji, then that's that's uh, an um, ideogram so that that will indicate a meaning. But they could also write the same word using one of the um, um, syllabic systems that Japanese has. And in that case, they could leave it quite uh, ambiguous. So um, we, when translating, we sometimes we had to decide which meaning uh, are we going to go for, or is there some way that we can hint at more than one meaning at once? I am so glad that you take that into consideration because um, I, in, I, during my learning of classical Japanese, um, we had to translate poems or sometimes essays for class, but I think maybe that's one thing missing from many of the Japanese classes is to pay attention to the importance of the choice of these kanji and the meanings that 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 choice itself could indicate. So I think it's absolutely wonderful that you're taking that into consideration as well. I think as well that um, it was lovely working with it because I think that's, you know, poetry in English is a very different beast, obviously, to poetry in Japanese, but it's still able to kind of hold two meanings at once and I think that is the nature of poetry and for me it was just such a delicious challenge to try and carry over as much of those um, dual meanings as possible into English but in a way that would work as an English poem do you know what I mean that wouldn't kind of be clunky in English and I think the other thing that I suppose issue slightly similar but there were so many cultural references in the poems and that we Sometimes we had to leave them, much to our kind of disappointment. You know, we, we, we couldn't find a way to translate them into English. And we felt that in some cases, when we did use them in the poems, they would actually distract from a poem in English. 
Um, we had great debates with Pat, the editor of the book, um, about, uh, I think it was the Ariadne, was it the, the noosa in one of the poems, or wooden wands that we used to purify in Shinto rituals, and also the particular type of wicker fish traps used on the river Uji. And again, that, that was really another one of the challenges, was how do you evoke the, um, the references but leave a poem that works in English as well. I absolutely agree. Uh, now, to give us an, a give us a taste of what the, these poems are like, could you perhaps share with us uh, each um, one of your favorite poems from this collection and tell us a bit about uh, what what this poem is saying and why it's your favorite? Well, maybe we could. Um, th there's one poem here that really demonstrates uh, what we were just talking about: these, these cultural references, and that's 61 uh, in the collection. And um, the reason that it it does this is because it uses a kind of technical vocabulary, um, and that technical vocabulary is um, is really the crux of the poem in Japanese. So. Um, it, it talks about um, the nine-layered um, cherry blossom. So in Japanese, if you say that a flower is nine-layered, what you mean is that it's a double bloom. So it's not just one flower, but it's basically a flower in a flower. And uh, it contrasts this with uh, the nine layers. And doesn't say the nine layers of what, but it just says the nine layers. But uh, to anyone in classical Japanese um, society, they would know that the nine layers refers to the imperial palace um, of Nara in this case. So um, maybe I'll just read the poem in Japanese and then, um, and then Nell could give us the translation. So it goes, Inishie no Nara no Miyako no Yae Zakura Kyo koko no e ni Nyoi nurukana I view cherry blossoms in the ancient palace of Nara, exquisite. Each double layer reveals another inner sanctum. That's beautiful. Um, what about you now? What's one of your favourite poems? I think I might choose the one which we took the title from it's called a gap in the clouds or it's sorry it's poem 79 and we were really i suppose we were editing this book you know we'd done a lot of the work before the pandemic and what was absolutely extraordinary for me was just how resonant and how more resonant the poems became throughout as we went into lockdown after lockdown and again um just paying tribute to pat boren our our editor and publisher he was really keen on getting a, a kind of optimistic title for the book. Do you know what I mean? That So, you know, hopefully as we're all coming out of this difficult period, the title of the book even would reflect that. And this is one of those beautiful poems which just gives this a momentary glimpse of um, a kind of natural phenomenon. And it's um, so, James, would you, do you want to read the Japanese first and then I'll read the... Sure. Uh, so it's 
from a gap in the clouds, stretched thin by autumn wind, the moon radiates its brilliance. And again, that notion of a gap in the clouds is so much, I think, something that we all need to see at the moment. But it, it was extraordinary to me that something written a thousand years ago by a Japanese courtier could carry that, you know, you could carry that into English and carry some a kind of hopeful message or a, a something that might give you an uplift of the spirit. And I think that's what I found really gratifying, actually, about the reaction to the book has been both the reaction of people like yourself um, who are, you know, have knowledge of the language and of the literature, but also people who who don't and that they're able to respond to the book and that the book is has been a real source of solace for a lot of people at this difficult time. I absolutely love it. It's um, oh. very beautifully written originally and it's beautifully translated. Oh, thank you. Hmm. So looking to the future, do you plan on uh, working together on other um, Japanese poetry collections too? Oh, that's a really interesting question. We haven't actually talked about it. Um, and I suppose we're both going back to our own projects at the moment. Like I'm finishing um, a new collection of poetry, which has been quite influenced by this actually. And also I have another nonfiction book. And But I, I can't imagine at some point we won't um, tackle another project, James. I don't know what you what you think. Yeah, I I keep thinking that there's a gap in my life now when it comes to um, this this project because it was it was something that we were working on for a long time. It wasn't our main project for a long time, but it was something that was ticking away. Um, yeah, for for well over a year. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I miss that uh, process, and because the poems are so short but so rich. Uh, there's something very, very satisfying about um, when you when you gather all the information and make all the footnotes uh, ready to hand over to Nell, and then you describe what the poem is talking about and read it to Nell. I found it extremely um, enriching. So um, I would like to go back to to doing maybe another collection, and there's plenty yeah. to choose from in Japanese culture. Yeah, and I think the other thing I think was. It was such an enjoyable project because, you know, as certainly as a writer and a poet, you're you're working on your own a lot of the time. Do you know what I mean? So it's lovely to kind of be collaborating with somebody. And I think also to I felt in a way I was repaying a debt, not a debt, but I think Japanese poetry had been so important to me in translation that it's actually been lovely to kind of produce something that maybe somebody else will carry around with them and get get meaning from. So I think it, it's been a very satisfying project, as you say, James, to, to work on. And I think, yeah, I think it would be great actually to work on something in the future. Yeah, it would be amazing if you um, translate another poetry collection from one oh. of these Japanese classics. I think a lot of uh, Japanese learners, especially Japanese classical learners, could benefit from uh, um, even your translation. Um, I really loved how you beautifully translated these, um, these, uh, like you said, the words with multiple meanings. 
Oh, thank you. Oh. No, it, it's sorry, James. Go on. No, I, I was about to say that uh, sometimes in a fit of insanity, I think about the Mang Yoshu and uh, how interesting it would be. But um, then I, I remind myself how long that collection is. And um, so just doing 100 poems has taken us um, well over a year. And um, the Manyoshu is several times bigger than that. So um, <laughs> it would it would be a very, very big project for us. But there are plenty of other collections for us to get our teeth into. Great, great. Well, I certainly hope you take on that challenge. <laughs> Well, thank you so much both for your time and for uh, introducing us to this beautifully translated poetry collection. Thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you. you for your lovely questions. Actually, it's been really nice talking about it. Um... Thank you. And for our listeners, um, if you are a poetry lover, if you want to um, read more of these beautiful Hyakuni uh, Ishii poems, make sure you check out this uh, book by James Hadley and Nell Regan, A Gap in the Clouds, a new translation of the Ogura Hyakuni Ishii. This is Jingyi Lee from the New Books on Japanese Studies podcast channel. I hope to see you in our next episode. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>